Many of us, as we walk into the hall, bow or pay respects to the Buddha. Who is it that we're paying respects to? Who are we bowing to? Clearly, it's not a piece of stone or a piece of metal. We're really bowing to the potential for awakening, for liberation. One of the most vivid images that stays in my mind is of our teacher Deepama, who most of you have either met or heard of. This wonderful woman from Calcutta, very extraordinary yogi and being. She was here one year uh, teaching, and she would come into the hall and she would bow to the image of the Buddha. And it was such an amazing gesture of grace and beauty because she was so empty. She was so selfless in it. And it felt in watching her like it was wisdom bowing to wisdom or love bowing to love. Tonight I'd like to speak of the Buddha and the significance and the meaning of his life and his life's journey, the meaning for us in our lives, in these times. We can approach this on different levels. We can look at his life on different levels. We can understand the Buddha as a historical person who was born sometime in the 6th century before Christ, born to a certain family, went through the various trainings of his childhood and education and got married. And We could trace the details of his life historically his yearning for enlightenment, the accomplishment of that enlightenment. But there's another level we can look at the life of the Buddha, and that is understanding the Buddha as an archetypal, the archetype of awakening you know, for all of humanity. The it's the full expression or the archetype of the awakened mind. And on this level, the Buddha's life is not simply a series of events, you know, particular to himself. But on the archetypal level, it's the unfolding of a great mythological journey. Sometimes when we hear the word myth or mythology, we might associate words like unreal or imaginary. But mythological really has a much more profound meaning. The power of myth universalizes the particular. It relates individual experiences to the more universal principles. And so on this level of the sacred mythological journey, the Buddha's journey really reflects our own, connects with our own. We begin to find a deeper meaning in our own life, in our own choices, when we understand it in this bigger context. Just for a moment, contemplate you know, the stories of the lives of any of the world's great explorers in any field, whether it's exploring new lands or exploring the frontiers in science or art or music or whatever. People who are at the forward edge of what is known. It's easy, I think, to appreciate the mystery and the excitement and the drama of people at that level of exploration. But maybe we miss the appreciation of the courage it takes 
to deal with the daily inconveniences, the daily hardships and frustrations and failures and ups and downs. People who go out to an edge in any arena without the familiar supports, without the support systems. In the same way, the countless ups and downs of our practice, the countless frustrations and difficulties, annoyances, are all part of this rather extraordinary exploration of our minds and bodies. We're really pursuing the boundaries of what we understand. We're playing the edge of what we understand. We're pushing the boundaries of our capacity for love and for compassion. This whole journey of discovery, this mythological sacred journey of awakening, was described very clearly and beautifully by Joseph Campbell in his book, which is called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in this book, he uses the Buddha's life as an example of this journey of awakening. And he interweaves the personal, historical elements of the Buddha's stories with the universal principles that they embody. The first of the stages on this journey, he called the call to destiny, or the call to awakening. And this call to destiny, call to awakening, happens when something occurs in our lives that makes us question how we're living. Makes us question what our lives are about. When we realize that the conventional way of understanding things, that the conventions of society no longer quite do it for us that we feel there's something missing in the conventional way of viewing things. This world of convention is contained in one verb. One verb in our language holds so much of how we usually perceive ourselves and the world. And that's the verb to have. So much of our understanding revolves around the verb to have. We have possessions. We have relationships. We have a mind. We have a body. And our language, the way we talk to each other, keeps reinforcing this notion of having, of possessing. Eric Fromm, Swiss psychologist, he said, we are what we have. And so much on all levels, both external and internal, it's the having which defines us. But there's a huge problem with this. Because of the great pervasive truth of change and impermanence, there's nothing that we have that we won't lose. And so to base our lives on this value of having will always leave us with a sense of unease or discomfort or non-fulfillment. In the early life of the Bodhisattva, which is what the Buddha was called before he became fully awakened, before he became the Buddha, in his early life, the world of having was very strong. He was born as a prince, had a loving family, he had this fine education of the time, he had all the appropriate skills and the arts and sciences and 
weaponry and all the, all the ways young princes grow up. He had everything that the world values. So for Prince Siddhartha, which was his given name, the call to destiny, the call to awakening came when in the midst of all this having, in the perfection of having, he realized this is not complete. And he realized it when he came face to face with what are called the heavenly messengers, the heavenly messengers, the realities, the bare realities of sickness, disease, old age, death. Just before the retreat started, I don't know whether some of you saw the PBS special with Bill Moyers, kind of a four-day special on death and dying, and it was very powerful because it was really uh, these interviews with people in the dying process, you know, of serious terminal illness, and it tracked them, you know, all the way to their death and the family around them. And it was so powerful because it was so real. Stephen Mitchell, who is a wonderful poet and translator, he wrote one book of poetry uh, called Parables and Portraits. And he he takes a lot of uh, Western myths, you know, and fables, and he creates a prose poem with a little Buddhist twist at the end. Well, one of these poems in this book is called Cerebus. I think that's how you pronounce it. Who was this very fierce three-headed dog who guarded the Elysian fields, which in Greek mythology, these are, these are the fields, this is the place where the blessed go after death. But they can only get in if Cerebus, this very fierce three-headed dog, ascertains that they have really come to a place of peace. That's the entrance fee. So this is Stephen Mitchell, slightly edited, talking about Cerebus, this fierce dog, who's guarding these heavenly fields. He said, even he, though, was a puppy once. He sometimes looks out at the vast crowd waiting to enter and feels a twinge of pity for them. How impatient they are. And they would love to be able to pat him on each of his heads, say, nice doggy, and move on. But they are no longer living in the trivial, safe universe of their desires. Everything here is real. That's the power of the heavenly messengers. It takes us out of the trivial, safe universe of our desires. When we can really open to the truth of them as the Bodhisattva did, It becomes the call to awakening, the call to destiny. And so the Bodhisattva questioned, why should I, being subject to decay and death, keep seeking in my life those things that are subject to decay and death? What's the point of keeping keeping going after those things which in their nature are changing and impermanent. The heavenly messengers, where everything here is real, awaken that question, which is the same question for all of us. What is truly of value in our lives? What truly has meaning? Many people have these questions. But for many, the busyness of life 
sort of covers them over again. We may have these thoughts from time to time, and yet very often we just get re-immersed in the flood of our worldly activities, and so don't allow them to really enter us deeply. But each one of us here has definitely had some call to awakening, or you wouldn't be here. People don't come to IMS for a vacation. (laughs) There's some strong, very strong commitment and faith and understanding that's born of this call to awakening. I was thinking back to my own kind of journey on this path and how in some way I could see it even beginning when I was in college. I was a freshman in college and I was beginning to think of all these questions and at that time, of course, it was was pre-Buddhist. And I remember as a freshman in college being obsessed with the question of whether God existed. And I felt like my whole life depended on answering that question. And I got to such a point of intensity, and I remember this so clearly, somewhat with some amusement so many years later, I remember being so caught in that question and the importance of it that I gave myself a week to... (laughs) Okay, Joseph, (laughs) one week you're going to know the answer to this. Unfortunately, I can't remember what I decided at the end of the week. (laughs) But I remember the intensity, the intensity of the question. And then right after college, I went into the Peace Corps. And I was in Thailand. And it must have been those years, you know, where maybe we first deeply entertain some of these questions. Remember there being so much power and energy in wanting to find out who was behind the rush of thoughts and feelings and emotions of a 20-year-old, a 21-year-old, with all the ups and downs and the dramas of being that age. And I remember looking in a mirror sometimes and just wanting to Somehow peel the surface away. You know, what was behind it all? Who was behind it all? It's this kind of question that each one of us, in our own way, you know, with our own form, it's the intensity of these questions which really leads us to the practice. I think reflecting on our own call to awakening, what aroused this interest, each one of our own particular calls to destiny, by reflecting on it and remembering it, it reconnects us again with that initial source of inspiration, of energy. Now, sometimes you're sitting here and you're filled with doubt and... This is a little aside. One of my favorite book titles is a travel book by Bruce Chatwin, the Australian. The title of the book is, this is a travel book, What Am I Doing Here? <laughs> well, if that thought ever comes to you <laughs> as you're going through the day, what am I doing here? Reflecting back, calling back to mind, you know, that that initial power of wanting to know, of wanting to understand. The second stage of this journey, of the spiritual journey, the archetypal journey that the Buddha embodied, is called the Great Renunciation. Because if we want to awaken to hidden possibilities, to things we don't yet understand, 
we have to be willing to renounce, to give up our habitual way of viewing things, of seeing things. Because we're all caught in patterns of perception. And what becomes very obvious as our practice goes on is that things are not always what they seem to be. We can be going along on a certain level of perception and then all of a sudden drop to a new level and whole new ways of seeing begin to open up. Of course, there are many examples of this in science. And as the frontiers of science get pushed back. Remember reading, it was a year or two ago, when the Hubble telescope was sent up. Because astronomers had been looking at the sky for years through, through telescopes. But when the Hubble telescope went up, which was much more powerful, they discovered in the area around the Big Dipper, my favorite constellation, <laughs> in the area around the Big Dipper, they discovered millions more galaxies than they thought had been there. And each of those galaxies had hundreds of millions of stars. That's a lot to overlook. (laughs) And yet until the ability is there to see, if we stay satisfied with superficial levels of perception, whether it's of the stars in the sky, of our own minds and bodies, if we stay satisfied with the conventional superficial levels of perception, we are often living men in illusion, in delusion, in ignorance, because there's so much that we're not yet seeing. Just one other little piece of science. I'm not really that scientifically oriented, but sometimes just you know a few little things jump out. This was a description of... I'm not even sure what this means. <laughs> the world of quantum reality. I guess... Subatomic particle whatever. Okay. <laughs> so, this is, what, this is what it said. In very round terms, the quantum world operates on a scale as much smaller than a sugar cube as a sugar cube is to the entire observable universe. (laughs) When I read that, it was like a sugar cube to the entire observable universe. (laughs) There is a huge amount to explore. (laughs) Now, what's so amazing about the practice, I mean, these examples have been in the world of science and observable in some way, uh, material phenomena, but what's so amazing about our practice and about the power of our meditation is that there's that much to discover inside of ourselves as we learn to concentrate the mind somewhat, so that it's not just resting on the surface perception, where it develops the strength and the power to see more deeply, a whole universe of understanding opens up. And it happens in the stage of the great renunciation, when we renounce having as being our greatest value, or even our context of understanding. We start turning our awareness not to the sense of I am what I have, but really to the quality of our minds, of our beings. We begin to see that our happiness is much more dependent 
on the presence of wholesome, skillful mind states than anything we might have. Of course, renunciation is not just about external things. It's really the ongoing practice. It's letting go of indulging discursive thoughts. This habit of discursive thoughts. At one point, I remember being on retreat, and I was just getting lost again and again and again in these stories, these endless stories. And after watching them for ever, I remember. I just remember saying to myself, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to get enlightened? <laughs> and I was just like, you know, okay, wake up, you know. And I say that not as, or in by way of self-judgment, because that wasn't the flavor. It was just, what's going on here? What's your intention? What's your purpose? Do you want to just keep on indulging these patterns or to arouse some energy to really say, no, that's not what I'm doing here. No one really helped me to some extent. Come back. (laughs) It's not that thoughts stop coming, but it's letting go the renunciation of our habits of afflictive emotions. So we just don't get caught again and again and again coming back to the experience of the moment. Because just coming to the retreat, there is already a tremendous amount of renunciation. In comparison to how we usually or normally live our lives. For the Bodhisattva, the stage of the great renunciation was very dramatic. Now at the age of 29, he left the palace, he left his family, he left loving friends, he left everything. He left the world as he knew it. So inspired was he by his call to awakening, by his call to destiny. He had to know. He studied with different teachers. He studied all of the levels of samadhi, of concentration, the jhanic practices. He did five or six years of these intense ascetic practices, you know, really mortifying, torturing the body. As There was one school of thought in those days that that was a way to liberation. But after spending years in that kind of practice where he it said that he got so emaciated you know, that as he went to reach for his stomach, he felt his backbone. He felt for his back. And it's some wonderful, very powerful images of the, of the Bodhisattva, which you see often in Asian countries. They typically call the, the statues of the emaciated Buddha. You know, and it's just basically skin and bones. You know, but, but sitting there with that power of determination. All of these practices, the samadhi practices and the ascetic practices, which he eventually realized did not lead to awakening, he gave them up, he took nourishment, and it prepared him for the third stage in this spiritual unfolding, this archetypal spiritual journey. As Joseph Campbell describes it, he calls it the great struggle. There's the call to awakening, the call to destiny, the great renunciation, leaving what's familiar, both in terms of our external world and also our internal world. And in that leaving of what's familiar, we then engage in the great struggle. Joseph Campbell describes it in this very mythopoetic language. And you've probably either from seeing the movie The Little Buddha, or reading about it, it's the bodhisattvas sitting under the Bodhi tree, confronting all the forces of Mara. Mara being the personification of ignorance, the personification of illusion. I'll just read as 
Joseph Campbell's words describing this. And, and as you hear it, as I say, the language is very grand, mythopoetic. For this minute and a half, let your imagination run wild. <laughs> you know, just see if you can really image it as you're hearing it. The Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree and straightway was approached by Kamamara, the god of desire and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, twelve to the left, and in the rear, as far as the confines of the world. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the, fu- <laughs> the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder, and flames, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness, Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gotama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed the forces of desire, pining and lust, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting there and flung his razor-sharp discus discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. Every time we sit, we're really sitting like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. We sit. And as you all know, Mara appears in ways perhaps not as dramatically described, (laughs) but as powerful in its ability to distract us, to pull us away. We are all confronted by the armies of Mara by the forces of desire and fear and anger and boredom and doubt. But if we understand the context of this happening, these experiences that we all have in practice take on a much greater meaning than just the immediacy of the experience in the moment. Now we can get so caught up in the particular little struggle that we're having, or big struggle, that we forget that this is part of a much greater picture. Yes, we are sitting under this tree, under this Bodhi tree of awakening, and Mara will come. And every time these forces come, we are in this stage that Campbell called the Great Struggle. Can we sit and be with it? Be with what's happening. Practice being unmoved, as the Bodhisattva was. Many times we are moved, and we come back to that place again. It's part of an unfolding of a much greater journey than just what's happening in this moment. Thomas Merton, who... You know, in the last century, embodied so much the spiritual journey, the spiritual life. He said, prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. That's when prayer and love are learned. 
And it's the same way with our own practice. We learn in the times of the greatest difficulties. This is really the meaning of courageous effort. It's the willingness to open to it all, to open to the whole range of our experience, particularly when it's difficult, when the forces of Mara are assailing us with mountain crags and burning sands and boiling mud. In Pali, the word for this courageous effort the word is virya. And virya can be understood from different sides. There are different qualities to it. One aspect of virya is the heroic effort that beings like the bodhisattva, like the Buddha made on his journey to enlightenment. I'd like to read one expression of that energy of virya, of effort, that the Bodhisattva declared. He said, If the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability human effort, human exertion. That's a powerful determination. It's it's that sense, yes, if this can be done by human effort, human ability, human exertion, I will do it. And so that's one quality of virya. But how we undertake this effort, even this heroic effort, how we do it, is all important. Because it can be done in ways that are both appropriate and tremendously inspiring. We see that other people before us have accomplished this journey. People just like us, and we can do it. And so it is appropriate We can do it in a skillful way. But for others, that language, let my skin and bones dry up. Some people hear that, and rather than get inspired, (laughs) feel a little daunted. Or on the other hand, it can be undertaken with a quality that leads to just tremendous ambition and tension where, it, where it's undertaken not in a skillful way. So the other side of virya, and it's, it's another translation, as well as this tremendous quality of determination and effort, and yes, I can do this. The other side of it, and the translation which I like a lot, is virya as courage rather than effort. And in English, the words just have different connotations. Courage is that strength of heart. Courage is that quality of heart that is willing to be present, that does not retreat from difficulties. And so for some people, the rousing of heroic exertion is inspiring. For other people, That doesn't quite do it. For some, it's this quality, can I bring forth this courage, this courage to be here with whatever is arising? And that's what becomes onward leading. So as we sit under our own bodhi trees, every time we sit or every time we walk, can we call upon this courage? this willingness, this tremendous interest to understand, to see more deeply. It's this courage or this willingness to put forth effort in this way which really takes us beyond our limitations. 
It pushes past our edges, our boundaries, our habits, our comfort zone. And it's different for each one of us. There's no one model. We will each do it in our own way. One of the last times I saw Deepama in India, before she died, I was just walking with her, and she, she was a woman with extraordinary courage and strength of heart and ability to make effort. As many of you know, and I've heard stories about her, she came to the practice very, very ill and with a lot of suffering in her life. She was so weak and so ill. When she first went, she crawled up the stairs to the meditation hall to sit. Now just try to picture yourself being so weak and so ill, crawling up the front steps to get in here. More likely we'd be resting in bed, (laughs) which is fine. (laughs) But it's just to point out There are other possibilities (laughs) when there's this tremendous sense of virya and inspiration. And she was, she was just magnificent in in her quality of heart. Well, the last, one of the last times I saw her, she turned to me and she said, Joseph, I think you should sit for two days. And she didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant... I should sit down and get up two days later. As she had done. She, she had been in practice in samadhi uh, for four days without, without moving. Just, her power of mind was so great. Well, she said, Joseph, I think you should sit for two days. I looked at it and I just laughed because it seemed so beyond even what I would ever think about. So I left a little bit, and she just turned to me and she said, don't be lazy. <laughs> well, I've never quite done the two-day stint yet. But it was, it was just a lesson in, she wasn't joking. You know, for her, that was, yes, this is, this is within the realm of what can be done. So it's just, Kind of to hold open greater possibilities, you know, that come from this place of courage, that come from this place of heroic effort, of energy. It needs to be done skillfully. You know, and that's where we will we will find our own way in doing it. But to hold it as a possibility adds tremendous power and depth to the practice. There's the call to awakening, the call to destiny, that which first makes us look past the conventions of society, the conventions of our own mind. There's the great renunciation when we're willing to give up enough so we can look, we can go deeper. And as we do that, it leads to the great struggle. When we place ourselves on the seat of awakening. Mara shows him or herself. And we engage, we engage with all the forces of Mara. That's part of the journey. And it leads to the fourth and final stage, which Joseph Campbell called the Great Awakening. And for the Buddha, this happened on the night of his enlightenment, Progressively, in the three watches of the night, he sat himself down under the Bodhi tree, took the diamond throne of awakening, and it said he resolved that he would not get up from his seat until he had opened to the deepest truth of enlightenment. So he sat down with that resolve. And in the three watches, the three times of the night, different levels of insight began to open. In the first watch of the night, it said that he saw all or many endless number of his past lives. 
being born in certain circumstances, living out a life, dying, being reborn in different circumstances, living out the life. And through the seeing of that endless round of rebirths, he saw the emptiness of it, the dreamlike quality of it. Just this cycle of birth and death and birth and death, with all of the particular circumstances just fading away one after the other. Well, even if we don't have the power or the ability to see past lives, that same insight comes even from looking back or reflecting on all the experiences of this life. Where are they now? All of the dramas and all the things we were so happy about or sad about, they're just disappearing. There's really life and death in every moment. In the second watch of the night, he opened to the understanding of the law of karma by seeing the past lives of other beings, seeing how people are born and live their lives and die and then reborn according to their karmic destiny, known different of the planes of existence, planes of great happiness, planes of suffering. And it was through seeing this, it was through seeing the karmic unfolding of people's lives that awakened in him the great compassion. Because he saw all of these beings wanting happiness and most of them not knowing the way. And so endlessly circling through the rounds of samsara. And again, we may not be able to see the birth and death of beings and their karmic destinies. But when we look at our own lives, how many realms of existence did you visit today? One day or two days. You can feel wonderful. You can feel concentrated, a Brahma realm. You know, feel a lot of metta. And then be lost in a world of desire. And then maybe in a hell realm of anger or fear. And then back again to the human realm. We go revolving around and around through our changing mind states. The third watch of the night said the Buddha opened to his understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the law of dependent origination. That is how suffering is created. What is the process that keeps us bound to this wheel, this endless wheel of changing circumstances? What keeps us bound to it? What keeps us suffering? What is its cause? And he experienced the end of that suffering and understood the path to the end, which is the very path we're walking on. And as the tradition describes it, just at dawn when the morning star appeared, the Buddha's mind awakened to the unconditioned, to the ultimate freedom. Because there's the very famous verse, the first verse which he uttered within himself, within his own heart, in the moment following his enlightenment. And just think, I mean, this is the fruition of countless, countless, innumerable lifetimes of courageous effort culminating in this moment of awakening, of freedom. These were the first thoughts, the first words that came to him. I traveled through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house, house of mind and body. Sorrowful is birth again and again, birth in samsara. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters, the defilements, have been broken. Your ridgepole, ignorance, has been shattered. Mind has attained to unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. Mind has attained to unconditioned freedom. 
achieved is the end of craving. So just for a moment, now, settle back. Relax into a mind of no clinging. Just sitting. Relaxing the mind from any grasping at anything. Just for a moment. Not wanting, not craving, not desiring. This is what we're practicing. Whatever methods we use and whatever tools we develop, it's all for the purpose of the mind that's not grasping at experience. And we can practice this in any moment. The Buddha was enlightened at the age of 35. He spent six or seven weeks around the Bodhi tree, enjoying the fruits of his awakening. Then he left, this was in Bodh Gaya, he left for Sarnath, which was a small village outside of Benares. In in Sarnath, he met with the five ascetics that he had been practicing those ascetic practices with. He thought, These people, even though they have not understood the right path, their intention was so strong that they would be ripe for understanding. And at first they didn't want anything to do with the Buddha, because he looked well-fed and well-nourished and happy. And (laughs) They said, oh, you've given up the, the real path. But he came, and through the power and force of his being, They came close and they listened, and he gave the first discourses. And in the first few discourses that the Buddha gave in Sarnath, he really set the foundation for the next 45 years of his teachings. He taught about the Four Noble Truths, about suffering and its cause, and the end of suffering and its path. He talked about the middle way between sense indulgence and sense mortification. He taught the profoundly transforming understanding of anatta, selflessness. Within a short time, can't remember the number of days exactly, but within about a week, each of the five ascetics had become fully enlightened. That's one of the wonderful things about the Buddhist stories. <laughs> Not all of them, but most of them have happy endings. <laughs> and they're really wonderful stories as you read through the suttas of how the Buddha helped you know, each individual by seeing exactly what it was that they needed. One of my very favorite stories is of two brothers, one of whom, both monks, one of whom was an arhant, fully enlightened. The other was a dullard. And the enlightened brother kept giving the dullard one four-line verse of Dharma to memorize and study. But it said the poor dullard, he would finally, after tremendous effort, remember one line. And then as he was going over the second line, it would push out the first. (laughs) And then the third line would push out the second. This was going on for a long, long time. He couldn't, he couldn't remember. I'm getting increasingly sympathetic to the dullard. But there is a happy ending to this story. So finally, the brother, the Arhant brother, he said, you know, you shouldn't be a monk anymore. You're not, you can't do it. You're too dull. So the poor dullard was walking down the road and feeling very dejected because he just had this tremendous love you know, of the Dharma. And the Buddha came to know of all this you know, through his eye of wisdom. So he came up along the road 
by the dullard and it said, he, he just started stroking the dullard's head, you know, consoling him. He said, don't worry, your brother really can't kick you out of the sangha, it's my sangha. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and he said, I have a special meditation for you. You don't have to memorize anything. Take this white handkerchief, stand out in the sun, and just rub it in your hands. And you do that. So the Dalit said, yeah, <laughs> I think I can do that. So he stood out in the sun with this white handkerchief. And after a while, the handkerchief started to get soiled. You know, it started to get dirty. And, and what happened was, it awakened in the dullard an experience from lifetimes ago when he had been a king in some realm, had gone out in all his finery, you know, in the very hot weather, and he had noticed how all his fine and beautiful clothes had gotten dirty and sweaty and you know, unpleasant. And at that time, in that life, he had really started reflecting on the non-beautiful aspects of the body. You know, and it, it caused a real dispassion to arise in the mind, non-attachment, non-clinging. So as the dullard, many lifetimes later, was rubbing the handkerchief, you know, and he saw it get dirty, it like brought back that memory, that understanding, all whatever subsequent lifetimes of practice. He saw it get dirty, his mind became dispassionate, let go of attachment, of clinging. Not only did he become fully enlightened, it said he became fully enlightened with all the psychic powers, all knowledge of the teachings. <laughs> and then the story ends with the dullard now, no longer a dullard, uh, going playing all kinds of psychic tricks on his brother. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, creating multiple bodies and whatever. So the great power of the Buddha, he, because of his the great enlightenment, the greater he could see into the hidden tendencies of each being and know exactly what was right. There's one other story. There are two more short stories. Which One is of a nun who was practicing. And this comes from a wonderful book called uh, The Tales of uh, the Stories of the Sisters, the Terigata. And Carol gives a wonderful talk on this, which I hope she'll do uh, soon. Um, but this is the story of one nun. And also, I think it's something we can relate to. It is 25 years since I went forth, not even for the duration of a snap of the fingers have I obtained stilling of mind. <laughs> Not having obtained peace of mind, drenched with desires for sensual pleasures, holding out my arms, crying out, I entered the monastery. There's just this woman who has been a nun for 25 years, who not for a moment has obtained stillness of mind, filled with desire, sensual pleasures, despair, she enters the monastery, sat down. Having heard the doctrine, I sat down on one side. Having heard the teachings, I sat down on one side. Suddenly, I know that I have lived before. My deva eye has been purified. Supernormal power has been realized by me. I have attained annihilation of the kalesas, the defilements. The Buddha's teaching has been done. And it's just that, sent 25 years and it doesn't feel like any progress at all. And then in a moment, sit down, here's the teachings, and everything opens. And I find that encouraging. <laughs> So that in all those times, in all those sittings, when you think nothing is happening, and it's the same old stuff, and all the defilements, and I don't have any moment of stillness, think of this nun. You know, we just do it. We keep practicing. We keep practicing. And things are happening even when we don't see it. 
or understand it. And then when all the conditions come together, awakening happens. The last story of the, of the Buddhas. There was one monk who had been practicing on sort of the unpleasant aspects of the body. You know, the, the, the meditation that worked well for the dullard. But he couldn't get any place. You know, he was practicing, practicing, couldn't concentrate his mind at all. So again, the Buddha finally came to know, looked into his mind, looked into his way of understanding he saw that for 500 lifetimes, this monk had been a goldsmith, fashioning objects of beauty. And so just couldn't relate to this unpleasant aspect of things. His mind was not not attuned to that at all. So what the Buddha did was he created, through his psychic powers, a golden lotus, and again, through the, through the power of the Buddha's mind, he created this golden lotus, which gradually disintegrated, you know, in, I don't know the right word, withered or tarnished or whatever. And the Buddha said, here, contemplate this. Contemplate the impermanence of beauty. Contemplate the impermanence of what's pleasant. And as the goldsmith of many lifetimes turned his mind toward the beautiful, and seeing the impermanence of the beautiful, he also became enlightened. And so each of us, we have our own way. We have the particular way that our mind will respond. But it's always an opening to the transitory, the changing, the unsatisfying nature of conditioned phenomena. In one way or another, we need to finally arrive at the end of clinging, the end of grasping. And this is, this is our path. We all start with our individual calls to destiny. We walk on this sacred journey of awakening. And at a certain point, we realize that we're not doing it for ourselves alone. And that's the awakening or the arising of bodhicitta, which we talked about before. And the bodhisattva's courageous effort through all those lifetimes was really motivated by bodhicitta. He wasn't seeking Buddhahood for himself. He was seeking awakening for the benefit of all beings. And so in our own practice, we start with our own individual stories, what brings us to the path. And as we practice, as we open, this understanding of bodhicitta begins to flower. We undertake this journey understanding that we're not doing it for ourselves alone, but that we're really practicing for the welfare and the benefit and the awakening of all beings. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Buddha died at the age of 80. Everybody gathered around. And the last words he said before his death, he just received these as being the last words 
of the Buddha in all of his years of practicing and then teaching, this is what he leaves us with. With the light of perfect wisdom, dispel the confusion of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with diligence. Practice with heedfulness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.